Our reading this evening comes from the book of Isaiah and can be found on page 691 of the Bibles in the back of the chairs. So the reading comes from Isaiah chapter 6, reading from verse 1 through to verse 13. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here I am send me. He said, go, tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding, be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, O Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields are ruined and ravished, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And, al- and though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and the oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be a stump in the land. Well, thank you, Clive, for that introduction. I think. I can't remember any Italian. Um, it's probably appropriate because we're looking at uh, we're going back in a bit of history into I, where Isaiah started from. So we're going back to the beginning of Isaiah's story today. But I don't know about you, I always like to look at the end of a story to see whether it turns out well or not. And uh, if it's not a very good ending, then sometimes I don't think I'll bother with reading the book. Um, well, if you look at the end of Isaiah, if you go all the way to chapter 66... Um, it doesn't actually finish very well. And uh, anyone that tells you that uh, it doesn't matter how you live your life, 
because God is a loving God and it'll all be all right in the end. He'll look after you. Well, that isn't the way that my Bible reads. And if you read the end of Isaiah's book, you'll see that it isn't the way that Isaiah's book ends either. But towards the end of his book, at the beginning of chapter 66, this is what he says the Lord says. The Lord says, This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Now let me pray for us as we, as we listen to God's word this evening. Lord, would you enable us this evening to be humble and contrite in spirit so we can hear you speaking to us from your word and obey you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My technology hasn't let me down. According to J.C. Ryle, our Christian doctrine is useless if it is not accompanied by a holy life. It's worse than useless, it does positive harm. And he goes on to tell us why he thinks that's the case. He says that our lives are like a silent sermon, which all can read. We must be holy, for this is the most likely way to do good to others. We cannot live to ourselves only in this world. Our lives will either be doing either good or harm to those who see them. They are a silent sermon which all can read. It is sad indeed when they are a sermon for the devil's cause and not for God's. And he tells the story of a tradesman who says that many of his customers talk openly about their Christian faith but think nothing of cheating him out of the odd penny or halfpenny. It was written 150 years ago. And this tradesman said, now if religious folk can do that, then I can't see what good there is in religion. Well, it's 150 years ago, but it's still true for us today. And tonight, if you hadn't worked it out yet, we are going to be looking at holiness. If someone asks you what God is like, do you talk about his dazzling brightness, his unapproachable light, about his holiness, his greatness, his majesty? See, Isaiah sees God and his glory filling the whole earth. And the seraphs call to each other, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah knows he's in trouble. Well, we saw in the last couple of weeks at the start of his book, chapters 1 to 5, Isaiah tells the people 
that they're in trouble for abandoning God. They're on a slippery path, living for the foolish idolatry and pagan practices of the surrounding nations. Judgment was coming. A day of reckoning was due. Turn back to God and his ways, or you face disaster. What a way to start your book. But now in chapter 6, Isaiah gives his testimony, his story of what happened when he met God. He tells them, I don't really enjoy being a, a man of doom and gloom. I'm not trying to make a name for myself. No, God sent me. Let me tell you the story of how I got this message. And it's not the usual conversion story, is it? Do you remember where you were when you first realised that you were in trouble with God? I can see quite clearly where I was. It was in a big marquee tent on the banks of the River Wye. And someone was explaining to me the gospel. Someone was explaining why Jesus had to die on the cross. And I realised that I was a sinner in need of a rescue. Well, Moses heard God speak to him from a burning bush. Saul saw a bright light and heard Jesus speak. But for Isaiah, he gets to see Almighty God in his glory. Whatever it was for you, the moment that you face the facts of your life and you face God is a life-changing moment. If you're following the outline on the service sheets, we are still on the first one. God is holy, I am not. And that was Isaiah's experience. And of course it's our problem too. God's holiness is such a contrast to our lives. We immediately see that we don't match up. Did you notice that although Isaiah sees God... He doesn't actually describe what he looks like. Instead, he tells us things about him. His position, his glory, his greatness. He's high and lifted up, seated on a throne, his kingly robe filling the whole temple, and the seraphs, which translates as burning ones. They hide their faces and their feet from him. They don't look at his brightness. They don't even stand in his presence, but they surround the throne with their hymn about God's holiness. Let's read it again from verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another. These burning ones, these seraphs, are so mesmerised by God's holiness that they're calling to each other. And the tense of the verb means that they are continually calling to each other around the throne. They are totally caught up. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. God is three times holy. 
Of course, we know why that is. It's God's nature. He is Father, Son and Spirit, one God who is also three persons, each equally God and each equally holy. Now the Hebrew word for holy that the seraphs cry three times is quite hard to pin down. It could mean bright, meaning God's shining moral purity, or it could mean separatedness, that he is above, beyond, outside of anything, anything else in creation. He is creator and therefore separate from and brighter than anything he has created. And this picture of God, his Shekinah glory, his complete beautiful holiness would make him unapproachable. The seraphs hide their face and at the sound of their voices the doorposts and the thresholds quake. The entrance to God's presence is a fearful place where you don't go. And the temple is filled with smoke, a sign of God's wrath, his anger against sin. Be fearful, God is here, don't try to enter. And yet, something doesn't quite add up. If God is so unapproachable, why would he show his glory on the earth? Why not stay in heaven and hide his glory away? And why does he appear in a temple built by men, which has a sacrificial altar in it, by which men can be reconciled to God, so that people can meet him and talk to him? Well, we know the reason, of course. It's because this glorious holy God, our God, who is light inexpressible and holy beyond our understanding, is also our loving Heavenly Father and Jesus, our rescuer, and the Holy Spirit, who changes us as we live our lives in Christ. Our God is not remote. He is personal and loving. And he comes down to earth to meet with people, with his chosen people, people like you and me, and like Isaiah. But I wonder how much Isaiah knew at that moment. This is only chapter 6. By the end of chapter 66, Isaiah goes on to tell what Jesus would accomplish 700 years later. He talks about a virgin birth, a suffering servant, and a conquering king who would be saviour not just of the Jews, but of all nations. But right at that moment, Isaiah has other things to worry about. Because as soon as Isaiah sees this sight of God he immediately considers himself ruined. The quake hits him. God is holy. I am not. Therefore I'm ruined. I'm as good as dead. God's total moral purity cannot be tainted by someone like me. And for Isaiah, this was a nightmare scene, which happened in the very year that the old king, King Uzziah, died. Now he was a long reigning king, he reigned for over 50 years and he was a good king, at least he started well. But his life ended badly, like so many men in powerful positions, he forgot who he was, he forgot his responsibilities and he did something foolish. 
He went into the temple where he was not supposed to be and he was punished by God with leprosy, which in those days meant that he was banished, he was cut off from public office and he lived the last 10 years of his reign in obscurity. And when he finally dies, it seems like the hopes of the nation have died with him. They're all turning away from God, as he did. They're all turning to idolatry, and they're heading for defeat. So what a year it would be, what a time for Isaiah to be there face to face with God in the temple. Holy God, seated on a throne, a perfect holy king in all his glory. He shouts, woe to me, I'm ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. The word for ruined means to be silenced. Like the silence that comes following disaster or death. He can't talk his way out of this one. He can't do anything except admit his guilt. Well, as as you read through Isaiah, you'll see that he will go on to warn the people saying, woe to you. But first, before he can do that, he must realise his own predicament, his own sin. God is holy. I am not. Woe to me. Can you imagine what he was thinking as the seraph took a burning coal from the altar and touched his lips and said his guilt was taken away. His sin was atoned for. Can you imagine what it's like to be thinking that you're a condemned man to being told that it's all good now? Your guilt is gone. You're free to go. It's unbelievable. The change that comes over you when you know that God has forgiven your sin and declares you guilt-free is beyond words. Now Isaiah saw his sin as what he said. And if we think about it, we'll see that too. Can anyone here say, I've always said the right thing. I've always spoken kindly about others. I've always been silent when I should have been silent. I've always spoken up when I should have spoken up. There's not one of us who can say that we've clean lips. But you notice the seraphs didn't have to wait for the Lord's instruction. He knew what the Lord would have him do. As soon as Isaiah speaks, the seraph takes action and immediately sorts out Isaiah's problem. God is holy, I am not, but God can make me holy. God will take my guilt away if I turn to him in my trouble, if I shout, woe is me. Can you put yourself in Isaiah's position? Have a dress rehearsal, because you will have an audience with God one day. You will stand before the judge of all men with no place to hide. 
But the good news that Isaiah gives you is that God knows what you're like. God knows that you're not holy. He has prepared a sacrifice that will cleanse you, that will purify you, and will take away your guilt. Isaiah doesn't actually do anything, does he? Apart from realizing he's in trouble, he lets God solve his problem. Have you done that? Have you seen that God is holy and you are not? And have you accepted his free gift to make you holy? Your prayer might not be quite like Isaiah's. Woe, I'm ruined, my lips, my language, my whole life is an offence to your holiness, God. But it's not a bad prayer. Of course, we know that Jesus is the sacrifice. He is the equivalent of the burning coal. In fact, it's the other way around. The burning coal was a picture in Old Testament times of the perfect sacrifice of God. God himself, God the Holy Son, who took your place and took the punishment that you deserve. The one and only sacrifice that could ever make anyone good enough to live with God. Then the Lord asked the question, who will go for us? Who will warn the people for us that they need to be cured as well? The second point, God is holy, go and say. I'll go, Lord, I'll take your message to the people, I'll be your prophet, I'll warn them what will happen if they don't change their lifestyles, if they don't deal with their arrogance, if they don't come to you with humble and contrite spirits. Now, I don't know what you expected to happen when you first started following Jesus. But I hope no one misled you into thinking it would be an easy life. Isaiah was told that the people won't listen. They won't change. In fact, the more you speak, the more hardened they'll become. Have you found that? That once someone has set their heart against the gospel, every time they hear another message, they seem to get even harder. Oh, that there's some way that we could open the eyes, unblock deaf ears. But it's not that they don't see or hear. They just don't take it to heart. They don't want to change. How difficult to speak the truth when you know that no one's bothered. How did, how did he do it? How did Isaiah do it? He is to go and speak clearly and carefully to warn the people, fully knowing that they won't change. He didn't appear tempted to ask the Lord for a different job. Could you send me somewhere else, Lord? Somewhere where the people will appreciate what I say and actually take your advice. No, he simply asked the Lord, how long? How long will this state of affairs continue? It's not hopeless. I know you have a plan, Lord, so tell me, Lord, how long? 
and the dreadful answer comes. Until everything has been destroyed and all the people taken into exile. And even then, though a tenth of the people will remain in the land, you'll still have to wait until the whole land is laid waste. But, and it's generations away, but from the debris of the land, from a fallen oak tree, a stump, a seed will remain. In two weeks' time, we'll return to the little shoots that will spring up from this remaining stump of the people of Judah. Well, Isaiah did go. He did warn the people. And the people did get worse. But through his book, this remarkable book, we can read of God's plan for the whole earth. 66 chapters that are almost like the 66 books of the Bible that give you the complete story of God's plan for mankind. Isaiah was one man who turned away from a godless lifestyle, the lifestyle of the people that he lived with, who acknowledged his sin to God, who received forgiveness, and who went on to walk with God and show what a life of holiness looks like. But let's finish with some application. For example, how do you talk to people about what God is like when they don't even believe in him in the first place? How hard is that? You explain your faith, you talk about Jesus rescuing you, and you get little or no response. Did they hear anything? Was it a waste of breath? It's not easy. The rest of the class are taking the mickey or just calling the Bible a book of myths. How do you tell them about the light? About the holy God that they will meet one day? Well, here's an example for Cypher to talk about later this evening. A friend of yours has read a new book. He's excited about it. It tells him how to be the person he always wanted to be. Oh, it sounds interesting, you say. Already pretty sure it's not going to be good news at all. And he shows this book to you. A scientist has worked out the answer. It will transform you and the world if you just follow his advice. Now you're really concerned. And you know this is wrong, but, but it sounds like good news. What is it that gives it away? What tells you it's bad news? The book claims to be the answer to poverty, world wars, and general bad stuff. It's called freedom, the end of the human condition. It 
It was launched in London by a famous campaigner. So you flip through nine chapters which seem to quote every religious book you ever heard of, the Bible, the Quran, Buddhist and Far Eastern philosophies, Plato and Socrates. And it's all a bit confusing, so you ask your friend, can he sum up for you what it all means? And he says, well, you really need to read the book yourself. Because once you've cleared your mind of all that other stuff that gets in the way, it, it really boils down to this. Stop thinking bad stuff and start thinking good stuff. And then you spot the deliberate mistake. Rather than restoring you into a relationship with a wonderful holy God, this is all about human relationships. It's all horizontal. There is no vertical relationship. This is a world without God. We can save ourselves. All we need is love. Imagine there is no heaven. Just be nice to each other. Well, it's the kind of thinking that we will all face if we seek to follow in Isaiah's footsteps and speak to people who aren't willing to listen and who don't want to face the fact that God is holy, I am not. And so they refuse God's help, and they will face life without him forever. There is one question that does lead to true freedom, if it's looked at carefully, by people who are prepared to change when they find the truth. This is it. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? And why did he die the way that he did and then come back to life? That's what the Christianity Explored course looks at. If you've not taken the course, why not refresh your knowledge of the gospel? Come along with some friends, bring some friends along so they can find out the truth about God's word and explore these questions in a relaxed, informal and friendly group. Well, for a talk on holiness, I've hardly scratched the surface. If you want to dig deeper, I recommend J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness. First published in 1879. It's timeless wisdom for a godless age. And the first three chapters in the book on sin, sanctification and holiness are worth their weight in gold. The Kindle version is under a pound. Paperback around six pounds. Bishop Ryle talks about practical holiness. And if you want to, some help with the nitty gritty, I think Tim Chester is your man. I don't know anyone who writes better about the day-to-day -day things that you need to do in life to live holy lives. The Busy Christian's Guide to Busyness is excellent. About, it's all about practical godliness. And finally, if you're looking for something even more searching, 
There's a whole book of the Bible that tells the story of Job. Job was so good that God boasted about him to Satan. He said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Well, if that isn't a definition of holiness, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. It's a remarkable story of a man who refuses to give up on God despite a really tragic life. He chooses right and rejects the wrong. Let me lead you in a prayer about holiness. Lord, thank you that we have the whole of the Bible, the whole story to show us what you're like, that you are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you for this story of what happened when you met with Isaiah and he saw your holiness. Lord, will you teach us from this? In the book of Hebrews, it says that without holiness... No one will see you. Lord, only you can make us holy. Will you do that? Will you do for us what you did for Isaiah? Will you give us a job like Isaiah's to tell our story, how we met with you and you took away our sin? And whether people are listening to us or not, will you send us to warn people that if they abandon your rescue, if they reject you, Lord Jesus, they will remain a stranger, an enemy, cut off and suffering forever. Lord, please will you enable us to, to speak this message clearly. Please enable us to live such holy lives that people will see the difference. They will notice that your light is shining in us and they'll want to know more. They'll want to know how it is that we are rescued, how it is that we're different. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Amen.